0: The Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government is hosting a hearing right now on the Twitter files. Let's watch some of that.
1: And to praise him for his work. This isn't just a matter of what data was given to these so-called journalists before us now. There are many legitimate questions about where Musk got the financing to buy Twitter. We know for a fact that foreign countries like Qatar and to...
0: so that was uh, those so-called journalists are Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, who've both been guests on our show and have done great work to bring the Twitter files to you. Here's how Taibbi responded to being called a so-called journalist.
2: At that time, was spent at Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, ranking member Plaskett, um, I'm not a so-called journalist. Uh, I've won the National Magazine Award, the I.F. Stone Award for Independent Journalism, and I've written 10 books, including four New York Times book- New York Times bestsellers. <laughs> uh, I'm now at that time we spend at
3: <laughs> I love that. A real mic drop moment there. I hope I hope she was listening because it, it seemed like from that clip that she wasn't even really paying attention to him.
0: They're never paying attention. But look, the attacks I testify on Matt before Congress before you, they, just, you, they, <laughs> they say their thing and then they it.
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I, I, you were allowed, obviously, to disagree with Matt Taby on various mm-hmm. things. You're allowed to say that this aspect of the reporting was more valuable than this aspect, to disagree with some of the conclusions that he might have drawn from some of the reporting, but to deny the substance of what he has reported on in its entirety. At the same time that you completely devolve into ad hominem personal attacks, which are so easily refuted, as Matt Taibbi did there, of all the things to criticize the man for, the idea that he is somehow not a real journalist or hasn't doesn't have a yeah. body of work that stands on its own two
0: legs is absurd. We've not been able to tune into the full hearing because we've been sitting in these <laughs> chairs making this show. But I, so I'm seeing on social media, I'm seeing various clips. And uh, yeah, it, this is a hearing about What the Twitter files has shown, which is this very worrying uh, collaboration between government-funded NGOs and government agencies like the FBI and others to influence Twitter and other social media companies to take down so-called misinformation having to do with Hunter Biden, elections, COVID. Maybe uh, some of those requests, uh, some of those requests being legitimate, a lot of them being take down this account that a political figure wanting a, an account taken down that was mean to them, and this cross, it's totally cross partisan, Democrats, Republicans doing it, but the, the 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 FBI and the agents and the agencies pushing on stuff from a very Russiagate perspective, is I think what was most concerning and what I've seen from the Twitter files so far. These these government-funded entities and government agencies saying, take down all these accounts because they're Russian bots. Twitter having internal discussions saying, "Uh uh-huh, these aren't actually Russian bots, and then the, the, the pressure campaign saying, you got to do something or we're going to tell Politico or the New York Times that you don't take the threat of Russian misinformation seriously. Yeah, it, it's That's wh- what is worrying and, and is worth Congress knowing about. And what I'm seeing is that a lot of these Democratic congressmen couldn't care less about this.
3: Yeah, well, it's worth noting, and you've pointed this out, that Yul Roth and others often refused those requests. Yes, and. While there have been some really big mistakes, the Hunter Biden laptop story being suppressed, chief among them, accompanied by internal discussions about how this doesn't even really violate our guidelines, I think that's the most damning, one of the most damning pieces. In addition to Lee Fang reporting about the kind of um, deep state run intelligence agency run bot accounts that are pantomiming basically uh, 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 accordance with yes. various international policies, doing regimes. exactly
0: what. Are FBI is saying other agencies. that
3: Russia is doing, right? Okay, so that that I think is one of the areas where Matt Taibbi on such really uh, solid ground. But it is also true, of course, that many times Twitter pushed back against this, and the issue really is almost more of a criticism of the intelligence agencies for trying to curry this influence more than Twitter itself for, at
0: times, acquiescing to it. Right, and Twitter's a private company. Like, if if it was as simple as Twitter's just making decisions we don't like, I would, in fact, reject that there's a basis to have a government committee meeting about it. Like, sorry, it's not your company. Sure. But what we've learned is that they're getting pressure from government-funded agencies to do some very um, sketchy things. Yes. And uh, and I want to play a a couple more clips here. So here is Michael Schellenberger and reacting to a question put to them about whether the, the hacked and released materials were misinformation.
4: Mr. Schellenbeck, do you believe that the Russians engaged in a hack and-release campaign with respect to the uh, damaging information they released uh, regarding the Clinton campaign? To the best of my awareness, that is what happened. OK. Yes. Fair enough. Thank you. Uh, That's not so the same thing.: the Reason in influence. I, I understand. I understand. Okay. Also that material was true. I've been—look, uh, let me introduce a couple of documents uh, just to reinforce uh, that we've got— uh, elect- that, is, that is not a legitimate predicate for
2: censorship. Mr. Schellenbeck, do you believe—
0: Yeah, again, he's he's just slamming the door shut there. Like, it's it's real information. That, that's such it's not point. misinformation.
3: It's yeah. true. That, that's such an important point because so many of Taibbi's critics have been— not mis- taking that into account as well. I Look, I interviewed Matt Taby on my own show on Monday, and I have some concerns about the broader representations, not what he actually has in his hands and he's reporting on, which I think is true mm-hmm. and newsworthy, but some of the broader conclusions that have been drawn about the nature of the bias, you know, that it, it the, the bias is only against the right and not at all against the left, when he, you know, admitted to me in the course of that interview that he hasn't has, has very... Really investigated at all, uh, targeting against the left because he very quickly came across the deep state, the intelligence agencies' interests in, mm-hmm. you know, mess, you know, influencing the censorship regime at these organizations, and decided to pursue that, which I think is a very legitimate course of action. But broader claims about whether or not, you know, what what the rest of the files show. I don't think you can really substantiate. However, having those kind of criticisms, what else is there, is the broader framing accurate, is not the same thing as challenging the newsworthiness of the emails that he has in his possession, which obviously show this relationship between intelligence agencies and Twitter and their ability to influence what Twitter does from a policy perspective that are undeniably inappropriate.
0: And there's some just crazy questioning of his motivations going on in this hearing. Um, Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz saying that like he's just in it for the money or something. Here, let's actually play that clip. It's pretty illustrative.
1: please do not interrupt me. Elon Musk spoon-fed Elon Musk spoon-fed you his cherry-picked information, which you must have suspected promotes a slanted viewpoint or at the very least generates another right-wing conspiracy theory. You violated your own standard, and you appear to have benefited from it. Before the release of, emails in, of the emails in August of last year, you had 661,000 Twitter followers. After the Twitter files, your followers doubled, and now it's three times what it was last August. I imagine your Substack readership, which is a subscription, increased significantly because of the work that you did for Elon Musk. Now, I'm not asking you to put a dollar figure on it, but it's quite obvious that you've profited from the Twitter files. You hit the jackpot on that Vegas slot machine to which you referred. That's true, isn't it?
2: I've also reinvested you've a made lo- some.
1: No, 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 no. Is it true that you have profited since you were, rece- were the recipient of the Twitter files? You've made money? Yes or no? I Very think it's probably
2: one. a wash, honestly. No,
1: nope. you, you have made money that you did not have before, correct?
2: But I've also spent money that I didn't have okay. before. I just hired a whole I, I, group of people to patently the obvious business.
1: answer, reclaiming my time. Attention is a powerful drug, eyeballs, money, prominence, attention, all of it points to problems with accuracy and credibility. And the larger point, which is social media companies are not biased against conservatives, and if anything, they ignored their own policies by allowing Trump and other MAGA extremists to post incessant lies endangering public safety and even our democracy. Hypocrisy is the hangover of an addiction to attention.
3: Outrageous. (laughs) Uh, Outrageous. I'm sorry, you're a journalism who wants people to read your reporting and you are, it's considered to be uh, undermining your credibility if you're popular, if people respond to the things that you're writing.
0: It's, it's not charity,
3: <laughs> we, we, it's a job. He's paid for his work and the hard work and the, the incredible toll that he's taken as being targeted as a consequence yes. of all of this reporting. It's outrageous and you know that she would never have this criticism of a, new, of a, of a, of a journalist for a, an establishment paper, well, the New York Times. She would never make a criticism of Hillary Clinton right. for selling Pentagon books papers, as a consequence of her. people are,
0: are doing speeches and selling books. It, and Exactly. Right. Good journalism should attract, hopefully, financial rewards. Exactly.
3: And I got to say, this kind of moralizing from someone who had to step down as DNC chair because a leak of true information yes. <laughs> did, uh, revealed her bias for Hillary Clinton and participating in trying to, I don't know, rig the election for the, the 2016 primary election for her preferred candidate. It's a, it's a little bit rich. It's a little bit rich. I will say, however, I do—it <laughs> pains me to do this— but this is exactly the issue that I was trying to convey to Matt Tabe, uh, when I talked to him most recently on my show. It seemed to me he he created a vulnerability mm-hmm. in not just reporting on what was in front of him, but making these broader claims about um, the directionality of the bias, even if they're true. I think it's frankly, especially in the immediate time frame we're talking about now, Frankly, very true that the, the social media companies have a bias more against conservatives than than the right than the left, and certainly against liberals because they're all liberals at these institutions. Mm-hmm. But what I think what we're really seeing is an establishment bias against an anti-establishment bias. So the bias is against Trumpism and those kinds of figures, election denialism. You know, those that part of the right not. Mitt Romney. And and at other times when the left has been more of a threat to power during the Bernie campaigns or more years ago in American history, then the FBI's focus, the CIA's focus, has disproportionately been attacking those kinds of groups. So I do think a framing that acknowledges that would make Matt Taibbi less vulnerable to what clearly has triggered the liberals here, which is that you are claiming that the the right is victims, and I just can't — I'm going to ignore all the information in the world if it leads me to the conclusion that the right is, in fact, being targeted Targeted Frankly, in this context
0: sh- Sure, I agree and appreciate that. I don't, but I don't think anything he could have done <laughs> would have yeah, deflected the kind of attacks he's getting from yeah. uh, Plaskett and Debbie Wasserman Schultz and others here, yeah. because they are just so bought into the idea that social media let uh, pro-Trump voices speak too loudly, and that is the reason he became president. That was illegitimate and wrong. That was a corruption of democracy. It was Russia's fault. Facebook and to a lesser extent Twitter it was their job to prevent it they didn't that's that's their mindset that's their entire narrative and it's it's completely wrong frankly it's just completely wrong from start to finish time and time again Social scientists, people who've studied, have proven that the influence of Russian bots is minuscule. Yes. That it was not correctly calibrated to target the right swing voters. And again, they weren't being targeted necessarily with with what is misinformation. With right. It's just alternative perspective. Right. Like you always bring up the examples of black voters being yes. targeted and saying the Democratic Party doesn't do enough for them. Yes. That's misinformation. Come on. Right. So it's the it's the whole idea is wrong. And Taibbi and Schellenberger are, 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 and others are bringing attention to to how uh, how that narrative came about, and and actually efforts that government authorities are making to try to correct what it, it was not a mistake in the first place. That's as that's, a result of It yeah. is a result. We'll all be censored.
3: That, what we are seeing here is a bunch of government actors protecting government institutions. Yes. It really and this is when, when I say that I am less enthusiastic or or I'm cautious about the conversation about the valence of this, I don't, that, it's because I don't want this point to be missed. It's not that I care if the right is being targeted more than the left, they, I think that they are. But I don't want to miss the conversation that what we're seeing is that could be, mm-hmm. the parties could change, the chessboard could, could reconfigure the next time around, but the establishment actors In Congress are always going to defend Mm -hmm. the FBI, the CIA, these intelligence agencies that do their bidding, that are now being accused of potentially blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, that have been Mm -hmm. defending American imperialism and state power and the infringements of the rights of minorities in, in, in Individual citizens since since they were founded and it's important to keep that in mind because the next time around the D's and the R's might be switched around But you're always gonna have a panel of Congress people who are willing to sit there and say There's nothing to see here when the intelligence agencies that we have access to and control over are infringing upon your right to say the
0: the agencies they are ideological, but not partisan. So right. much of this happened under Republican administrations. Yeah. If Do- Donald Trump's going to run, he's running for president. He's going to say, "I will put an end to this." Don't believe him. Yeah. So much of it happened under his authority. Well, he was and making he requests made, too. He made no effort <laughs> to stop it or slow it. He didn't care. He didn't yeah. understand it. Yeah. And that should be mm-hmm. a actually reason enough not to trust yeah. him to rein this in. Whatsoever. He, he
3: very much was making requests too, as Matei yeah. has
0: reported. Yeah. All right. We'll have more rising right after this. Please stay with us. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre doubled down on describing January 6th as an insurrection after Tucker Carlson released bombshell footage of what happened. Here she is at the podium yesterday talking about this.
5: Anybody who watched that video uh, in a, with their own eyes in a real way and saw what happened on that day would would disagree with what was just stated. Um, the President has been very clear, January 6th was the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War, and we should be focused on making sure that never happens again. And so we are certainly, uh, we agree. I know st- um, uh, Minority Leader and, uh, uh, and uh, Senator Schumer have already said this and would hope that keeping the Capitol and Congress safe and secure remains uh, Congressional Leader's number one goal, and that should be our focus.
0: Naturally, our friends at Late Night Television couldn't help get involved. Here's Stephen Colbert. Thanks in large part to the former
6: president. There's a whole industry of people who make a good living trying to make you think you're insane. Well, I make a very good living reminding you that you're not. Now, you'd think, you would think, you'd think that once the people gaslighting you on a daily basis have been revealed to be liars, say, in multiple text messages in a $1.6 billion court filing by Dominion Voting Systems, they would pump the brakes But apparently, some people are just addicted to being dicks. (laughs) Case in point, Fox News host and... and toddler sucking on a dog turd, Tucker Carlson, cherry-picked innocuous clips to try to rewrite what we all saw happening with our own eyes on January 6th. They were peaceful. They were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists. They were sightseers. Sightseers. Sightseers, really? Grab a rock, honey. We're going to the Louvre. <laughs> I, I, I want to peacefully smear my crap on the Mona Lisa. See if she keeps smiling after that. <laughs> All right.
3: So just to go to the Karine Jean-Pierre clip first. Again, I don't know why Democrats are playing it this way. Because here's the thing. Most people agree that what happened at the Capitol at 1 6 was deeply inappropriate, wrong, and embarrassing for the Republican Party, or at least for Trumpism.
0: Yeah.
3: However, it is also true that the real story of trying to steal the election was not what happened on the lawn of the Capitol on 1 6, but what happened in the weeks before when Donald Trump was making calls to people like the Georgia Secretary of State asking him to rig the count so that he would win in a a crucial, critical, uh, close state like that. That is the story. And since the beginning, Democrats have decided to downplay or emphasize that story less than the story of what happened literally at the Capitol that day, which was very attenuated from any actual outcome where an election result was changed, right? What Donald Trump was doing beforehand— could have led to a different outcome if the officials in the various states that he tried to influence did not have as much integrity. And mind you, these are Republican officials that stood up to Donald Trump and said, no, I'm not going to rig this election result for you. And court
0: after court, sometimes with Republican justices on these courts.
3: Correct. So the Democrats standing at the podium, Corinne Jean-Pierre standing at the podium and saying, one six was the closest that we've had to having our democracy overturned since the Civil War or whatever it was. You know, it 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 raises this desire to object, even from someone like right. me. Whereas I wouldn't have objected to the broader story about the election denialism, the effort that the Trump really sincerely did make. About Trump US made, not these people
0: were murdered. <laughs> um, I mean, sure. You know, I mean, quibble, with, quibble with the analogy, events, yes. but it
3: certainly was an attempt to undermine democracy. Mm-hmm. It just happened. More so because of Donald Trump, and not because of the QAnon shaman or anybody else. Right.
0: And Donald Trump should have been held responsible for it. He was correctly, in my view, impeached. He should have been—they should have voted to remove him. Many Republicans did. Not enough, but a a lot of them did. It's the most bipartisan vote to to end the, the sitting head ever taken in this country. Um, that was the mechanism for holding him accountable. At some, but it's and uh, you know what? If he runs again, but he was so he was not held accountable by that. It's, if he runs again, it'll be up to voters to decide. That's democracy, and they keep saying it's a threat to democracy, but then acting like these very institutional gatekeeping, guardkeeping things need to be done to prevent the people from weighing in or deciding. Like if you believe in democracy, you have to trust the people right. to to not endorse this kind of thing. And, you know, we've actually had really good indication that the people will not endorse this kind of thing right? because candidates, even among Republicans who have leaned into this, lost decisively where others would not have. Now, here's the thing, So we can trust in democracy.
3: Here's here's the problem, and here's where I think Democrats and some of these critics um, that we just watched clips of are on stronger footing. As a consequence of this Dominion lawsuit, we now know that even... People at Fox News, Richard Murdoch, Tucker Carlson— Rupert Murdoch. Rupert, sorry, Rupert Murdoch agreed with us. So we know now that Rupert Murdoch said in these uh, documents that have come out, and the testimony that came out of that lawsuit, that he believed that TV network hosted his own network, mm-hmm. Fox, went too far. That's a quote. We know that uh, Tucker Carlson said of Trump, I hate him passionately because of the box that he was being put in of having to— make some excuses for, dare I say, cover for Trump's behavior as Trump was engaging in all of this election denialism. And at the same time that behind the scenes there was this acknowledgement by people at Fox that Donald Trump was kind of off the rails, the public-facing discourse at Fox News was to continue to do this kind of soft-shoe apologia for the man. And that's—that, I think, is a, a legitimate concern, because they're, in effect, misleading their viewers and, again, participating in a kind of politics that is ultimately hurting the Republican Party. And, by the way, D- uh, D- uh, Tucker Carlson also acknowledges mm-hmm. in some of this discourse that this Trump Trumpism, this election denialism, is actually hurting the Republican Party, which is why it is, again, so confusing That's for him. That's why he
0: eventually, he defenestrated the chief um, architect of the view that the election had been stolen, um, Sidney Powell, uh, very, sure. very aggressively on his show. So
3: this is the question that comes up. What is the goal of the current messaging around 1-6? Which of course is not in and of itself election denial, but the people there were there Mm. protesting the outcome of the election because they believed it had been stolen because Donald Trump told them it had been stolen. Mm -hmm. So how how can one say that they're in a position where they are speaking out against election denialism when—look, the footage itself is neutral. Footage is footage. Right. You can put footage out there and disclaim, these people shouldn't have been there. Um, they were there because they believe the election had been stolen, and it has not been stolen. Um, but also, they, you know, they're, they're, what they did there has been rep- misrepresented in some ways. So that's perfectly legitimate. It's not clear to me that that is what Tucker Carlson is doing in his monologues and in his coverage of that footage.
0: Yeah, but as you just said, I mean, I don't know how what, what Tucker views as his role, but it, it can just be from a journalistic standpoint. he it, it, Releasing these video footage, it might be in the best interest of the public to see more about what happened.
3: Sure, but you say we don't yeah. know a lot about... Tucker's, how Tucker sees but his I, own I don't role.
0: We do know if Tucker we do sees know, his view as we, advancing the cause of the Republican Party, as
3: Well, we do have some insight into what Tucker he said, Carlson- He's so, in general. Like, I don't view
0: my role as advancing Robbie. the cause of a political party. We did
3: see, we do have some insight into what Tucker sees as his role when we see him in these Dominion, um, these Dominion lawsuit mm-hmm. communications expressing a personal view, but feeling compelled to have a public-facing view, because ultimately the role of the network as a whole, I don't know if he wants that to be the case, but the role of the network as a whole is to provide a degree of cover for the behaviors and positions that are taken by... Uh, Donald Trump, or at least, a, or at least a belief that going out too hard against Donald Trump, contradicting Donald Trump, will will financially hurt Fox News as a company, and that is not a, that does not speak to decisions being made because of journalistic integrity, which I I think there's an argument that releasing this footage is that like you, you there's all kinds of reasons you would could want to release this footage the the thing that democrats are responding to and independents and republicans who are tired of trump shenanigans are responding to is this idea that the the a journalistic output is constrained by the fundamental principle that you just can't go against Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, well, there has to be some limitations to that principle, even in terms of—it does not seem to me—I could be wrong—in a a conservative media's best interest to just defend Trump to the mat anymore. We're talking about a dwindling— base, uh, a base sapped of enthusiasm for a political figure who is utterly disloyal, who, who slams Fox News every day in his own messaging. He feels betrayed. I mean, his, his view is not that Fox defended him or helped him in any way. His view is that they they stabbed him in the back like no organization ever has. Um, so, so at some point... You know, you gotta <laughs> cut this guy loose. You know, it's, for it's interesting.
3: Part of the narrative about why it was that Kevin McCarthy—they all hate
0: him, and when want to see him fail.
3: It, well, part of the narrative about why Kevin McCarthy chose to release these tapes is that after 1-6, in the media aftermath, he came out condemning Trump, condemning these actions like a lot of Republicans mm-hmm. did. And Kevin McCarthy has been out of, in, out of the good graces of that part of the party as a consequence since then. And part of what we experienced with all of the force-to-vote stuff in January was that this more Trump-aligned faction was— making a public criticism of Kevin McCarthy and the decisions that he's made, anti-Trump positions that he's made in the past, establishment positions that he's taken in the past. And some have argued that him giving this footage up is him showing contrition and trying to get back into Trump's good graces, which again, it's not clear to me that the party has benefited, to your point, by constantly making political decisions on the basis of, will Trump like me again?
0: What did he say at uh, CPAC? I am your retribution. I am your retribution. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy. More rising right after this. Baccio, what's on your radar?
7: This week on Real Time with Bill Maher, Vermont senator and two-time presidential candidate Bernie Sanders joined Maher to discuss his new book, It's OK to be Angry About Capitalism. The book has already hit the bestseller list, uh, solidifying Sanders' position among the millionaires who used to exoriate before he switched his ire to the billionaires. Still, and I mean this seriously, who could begrudge the democratic socialist? A bit of cash in his dotage? I certainly do not. The man is clearly a heartfelt warrior for the downtrodden, someone who has devoted his life to raising up the plight of the have nots, a man who came from nothing and never forgot those living as he once did. He deserves respect and admiration for it. And yet, while one can cheer on this great American dream story, there is something instructive in how it played out. Specifically, how Senator Sanders used his talent and fame to write best selling books and climb the economic ladder, and from his new vantage point, declared that the real enemy are the people a few rungs higher up. Because in a way, this is the journey that the upper middle class has traversed more generally, and it unfortunately blinds many well-intentioned Americans to some of the real sources of inequality in this country. Uh, This was all very much on display in Sanders' conversation with Bill Maher. The conversation began with Senator Sanders discussing the theme of his book, which is that right now in America, there is more income inequality than there has ever been in the past. Three people own more wealth than the bottom half of American society, Senator Sanders told Maher. CEOs make 400 times what their workers do. There's a concentration of power and wealth in a smaller and smaller number of corporations, and three Wall Street firms control over $20 trillion. We also have a political system that's been corrupted by money, thanks to the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. Add all that up, says Sanders, and you get a country which is moving, quote, rapidly into an oligarchic form of society. The middle class declines and the rich get richer, says Sanders. Now, Marr pushed back on a few of Sanders' claims, starting with what would count as a fair tax rate for billionaires. After all, the top 1% already pay nearly half of all income taxes in the U.S., One could also question the narrative surrounding money and politics. Um, There is for sure something intuitively distasteful about it, no doubt. Yet Donald Trump was able to win in 2016 despite being outspent by his rivals, both Democratic and Republican, to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. You may not like Trump nor have wanted him to win, but he's got to inspire a vote of confidence in American democracy, whatever your politics are. Sanders is, of course, right that a lot of people who were middle class in the 70s no longer are. Many Americans and their children have been downwardly mobile, working class wages stagnated in the 70s, while the costs of the hallmarks of the American dream, owning a home, a secure retirement, choices for your children, have absolutely skyrocketed. NAFTA and globalization more generally resulted in the offshoring of much of our manufacturing, an industry that used to secure middle-class lives for working-class Americans. And now those same communities struggle with deaths of despair from suicide, alcoholism, and overdoses, something Senator Sanders brought up in the interview. Yet when you talk to people in those communities, it's rare that they bring up the problem of inequality as such. Often they admire billionaires and see them as jobs creators. These people just don't have nearly the same level of class resentment for billionaires that credentialed urban elites do. And it's easy to see why. So consider a country in which the poorest person was someone who wrote a few best-selling books and became a millionaire, someone like Bernie Sanders say, but whose neighbors are all billionaires. You would be hard pressed to make the case that this society was in trouble, though it was still very unequal. In other words, inequality is really only a problem if the bottom rung is struggling, living a life without dignity due to systematic deprivation of a sort one shouldn't expect in a rich country. Now, I would agree that with Bernie that that is true for all too many Americans. Yet the relevant question for helping them is not how rich are the billionaires. It's do they have access to the American dream? It's not how much more money than them do their bosses make It's are they paid a living wage enough to buy a home and retire in dignity? And again, Senator Sanders is right. Many truly aren't. But the reasons for that are complicated and the solutions Bernie has spent his life proposing would actually not do a lot to help them. While the problem Bernie has identified of upward mobility for working class Americans is very real, the solutions he proposes, taking money from the rich to expand the welfare state, are actually designed to sustain the dependent poor in that state, or even on occasion to help the upper middle class. While it's popular on the left to rail against the billionaire set, the truth is that it is the top fifth that has seen the biggest income gains in recent decades, even without the 1%, as Richard V. Reeves has shown. Between 1979 and 2013, the top 1% saw a jump of $1.4 trillion in pre-tax income. But those between the 81st and 99th percentile saw a gain of $2.7 trillion. At least some of the disappearing middle class, in other words, disappeared upwards, joining the ranks of what Reeves calls the dream hoarders, from where this new oligarchy decries the billionaires hoarding all that wealth and demanding it be be redistributed. And how much money a year puts you in the top 20%? Well, of course, it varies state by state. But on average, it's somewhere around... $125,000 a year, not coincidentally, the upper limit for qualifying for President Biden's student loan forgiveness program that Bernie heartily endorses. Bill Maher actually specifically asked Bernie about this on his show. Consider the following exchange.
4: Uh, This is a survey student loan forgiveness recipients. 73% of applicants say they are likely to spend their extra money on non-essential, including vacations, smartphone, drugs, and alcohol. They they admitted that to the pollster. Who is this pollster? NBC NBC News. Um, 52% they are very likely or likely to buy new clothing. 46% they would use the money for vacation and eat out at restaurants. This is why people have a thing about... I I would never call it free money. Oh, I guess I just did, but... um. Well, I I mean, let me respond to that in two ways, Bill. you talk about giveaways.
2: Under Trump, the Congress voted for a trillion dollars in tax breaks for the richest people in this money... in this country and the largest corporations. That's a giveaway. We just increased military spending, with very little discussion, I don't know if you know this, by 80 billion dollars.
7: Sanders also had this to say.
4: Military-industrial complex... Including the Democrats. Me? The Democrats vote for it, too. Yes, absolutely correct. Absolutely yeah. right. All right. But that's socialism, the military. That's crony socialism. Well, that's right? crony capitalism. But, but the it, military uh, isn't capitalism. That's, that's the government.
2: No, but it's who owns the military-industrial complexes. All right, but anyhow... Right. All right. So when you talk about giveaways, you have major corporations in this country that make billions in profit... Don't pay a nickel in taxes. Billionaires have an effective tax rate lower than that of a truck driver or a nurse. You have a generation, you talk about this younger generation right now. I got around the country and I talked to a lot of people. You know, I don't know anything about that poll, but I can tell you, I've talked to nurses. who are working their asses off, doing the right thing. They leave school $70,000 that. they can't afford now to get married and have children. They can't afford the housing that they desperately need. So the truth is, you've got a generation that everything being equal, the younger generation, will have a lower standard of living than
7: their parents. We had to cut part of that for timing purposes, but notice how when asked to defend giving money to people who would use it on things like vacations and eating out, Senator Sanders pivoted to what whataboutism. What about Republican tax cuts for the rich? What about the military? The argument he seems to be making is because we give tax breaks to corporations and billionaires, we should also give them to early career lawyers and accountants and professors and dentists. This isn't a working class policy. Of course, there are some people who took out thousands of dollars in loans and then dropped out of college who don't have the benefit of a degree in a marketplace that uses one as a gatekeeping mechanism, yet they still have the burden of the loans and these people absolutely deserve some kind of assistance. Yet those who graduate even with the burden of loans remain much more likely to become homeowners than Americans with just a high school diploma. Since 2010, the share of American homeowners with a bachelor's degree increased by 18%, while it's gone down by 13% for those without a degree. The median salary of someone with a bachelor's degree is more than double that of someone with a high school diploma. Despite student loan debt, a college degree is a strong and growing indicator for becoming a homeowner. So it's really misleading to cast college grads as those struggling to attain the American dream when they are the ones most likely to be achieving it and even hoarding it. Now, you might say that another one of Sanders' signature proposals is designed to address just this problem, his push for free college. After all, if everyone gets a degree, surely everyone will then have access to the profits of the knowledge industry. Unfortunately, it's just not that simple. A lot of people are not suited for college. More importantly, perhaps, there just isn't a glut of jobs that actually need a college education to go around. The growing industries in the U.S. include manufacturing, service industry jobs, trucking, and caretaking jobs. Someone has to do those essential jobs, and they should not be treated like less than just because they have chosen to devote their lives to them. Not everyone can be a programmer or a filmmaker, though certainly we should stop importing foreigners to do those jobs and make a push to educate more Americans who want them. And yes, there's plenty of untapped potential in neighborhoods without access to equal opportunity. That should be our focus instead of focusing policy on making life easier for more and more upwardly mobile college graduates who are actually already doing very well in this country, instead of continuing to hammer home some kind of values based connection between dignity and college or worse, handing out the taxpayer dollars of truckers and waitresses to college grads so they can go on vacation. Our efforts should be focused on making sure that jobs that don't require college secure a dignified life. In other words, Unfairness is not always injustice and you cannot tax your way to a solid middle class. It is no defense of billionaires to say that the real class divide is not between the billionaires and everyone else. It's between the top 20% and the bottom 80%. While millennial college grads may take longer to buy a home than their parents did, they are still highly likely to follow in their parents' upper middle class footsteps. Meanwhile, life for working class Americans is increasingly precarious. What they need is not charity from billionaires, they need access to affordable single-family homes, to vocational schools, and to safe neighborhoods where their kids can thrive. No doubt we need to do better at ensuring every American has health care and helping the dependent poor, but that will not create an upper pathway for seekers of the American dream. And Robbie, I told you before my radar that I thought you were going to like it a lot. How did I do?
0: I don't even know what to say. You took the words uh, right out of my mouth. I, I co-sign your entire uh, your entire thesis. There, yeah, I, I think uh, it's true that sometimes the focus on uh, economic inequality um, is a way of getting around. Uh, Questions about you know, I don't think it's so much that people resent wealthier people or people who've been successful. Maybe maybe they resent them if you know if they obviously if they got their wealth illegitimately as you know some as some wealthy people do by by get you know taking advantage of the system or you know rigging the game in their favor. And that's something you know I share the left's passion in trying to root out. But the real question is is the actual condition of people who are not wealthy good enough? Uh, get, and getting better over time, and in many ways it does. There, you know, there's less. Globally, there's less starvation there's, than, than uh, there has been in previous centuries. But in a couple—in in narrower cases in America, right, education costs have gotten a lot worse. Um, Health care costs have gotten a lot worse. So let's, you know, think about smart ways to tackle um, those problems, you know, rather than kind of sweeping condemnation of, of success, which, to your point, um, working-class people don't share. But uh, anyway, we'll leave it at that. Great job, as always, Batya, and we'll have more rising in just a minute. Brianna, what's on your radar?
3: Well, Robbie, I gotta ask, did Elon Musk really fall for a Ligma Johnson prank on his own website yesterday? Are you online enough to even know or care what a Ligma Johnson prank is? Well, the good news is that this radar isn't really about a prank. It's about new evidence and a mounting sea of evidence that, as a boss, Elon Musk might be lacking and potentially liable. This twisted Twitter tale began yesterday when a Twitter employee named Holly Thorleifson tagged Elon Musk in a tweet thread explaining that he wasn't sure if he had been fired along with the 200 or so employees who were axed a little over a week ago. He had lost access to his work computer, which was a clue, but couldn't get confirmation from HR as to whether or not he was still employed. Maybe if enough people retweet, you'll answer me here, he tweeted, as a last resort. Now, as the thread went viral, Musk responded, asking, what work have you been doing? Halley, apparently concerned that sharing his workflow might violate certain confidentiality rules, asked for confirmation that he wouldn't be punished for answering Musk's question. And after Musk confirmed that it was okay, he explained that he had worked on a SaaS, or software as service, contract, among other duties. Musk then asked Halley to be more specific about the SAS contract. And here's where it first gets a little weird. When Halley replied that he was working on a contract called Figma, Musk responded with two laugh cry emojis, apparently because he thought Halley was making a joke. You see, Figma sort of sounds like Ligma of the Ligma Johnson prank, and for those of you who are unfamiliar, it's like a Bart Simpson style joke, you know, the kind where he calls into Moe's pub with a name that sort of sounds like a name, but when you put it together, it sounds like something lewd, you know, Ligma Johnson. Anyway, Musk has a history of telling Ligma Johnson jokes, so many observers deduced two things. One, that Musk was so unfamiliar with his own company's design contracts that he didn't recognize the name of one, and two, that he assumed that Halley's tweet thread was all just a gag. Musk also disputed Halley's account of his professional responsibilities before ending with a YouTube video of a scene from the movie Office Base in which... Topically, a consultant and a manager looking to lay off staff, interrogate one of the staffers about the utility of what he actually does there. You know, the scene, the what would you say you do here scene? Okay, but Halley wasn't joking. Moreover, he had finally gotten a response from Twitter's HR confirming that he no longer worked at the company. So now he had a new question for the Twitter CEO. Will you make sure I get paid what I'm owed per my contract? You see, it turns out that Halley is an award-winning designer who sold his company to Twitter in 2021. And as a consequence of that sale, he negotiated some very favorable terms if he were to be fired. Apparently, the terms of his contract require a huge sum, millions of dollars, to be paid out if he is, in fact, fired. A sum so big that he's on a do-not-fire list, according to reporting at Fortune Fortune magazine. It's worth noting that Halley seems like a very decent guy. He intentionally received most of the purchase price for his company, sell to Twitter, as salary in order to maximize the tax he would pay in Iceland. Why did he want to maximize his taxes? Well, Halley sold his company and is telling below market price because of the toll his disability was taking on him. Halley lives with muscular dystrophy and wanted to pay a high tax out of respect to Iceland, where he's from, for the disability benefits he received there. Because of this arrangement, Halley was the second-highest-taxed person in Iceland in 2021. But before Elon realized all this, he lashed out. In now-deleted tweets, he accused Halley of being a prominent, wealthy man who opportunistically confronted Musk to get a big payout. Musk tweeted, from what I've been told, he's done almost no work for the past four months, middle management or otherwise. Despite his claims on Twitter that he did work, it turns out he told HR that he couldn't work because he couldn't type, but was over the same period typing up a storm on Twitter. Yet there are so many people on Twitter defending him, this hurts my faith in humanity. Well, Elon was right about one thing. There were a ton of people on Twitter defending Holly. Holly quote tweeted Musk's tweets claiming he was lying about his disability and explained in a detailed thread that he lost his ability to use his legs when he was 25 and has been using a wheelchair ever since. He's lost strength in his arms since then and has grown weaker over the years, prompting him to sell his company to Twitter despite making a lot of money on his own. Since working at Twitter, his his condition has continued to decline and he's no longer to use his fingers for extended periods of time without his hand starting to cramp. And while he can write for an hour or two, he's no longer able to work hands-on as a designer. He also clarified that typing on the phone, which requires one finger at a time, is easier for him. Now, this thread of his had over 280,000 likes. As of last night, Halley accomplished a very rare thing on the Bird app indeed, ratioing Elon Musk on his own website. Now at this point, many folks began pointing out that Musk's tweets were an HR nightmare. He disclosed an employee's disability, he claimed the employee was faking it, and said it was part of why the employee was fired the disability was part of why the employee was fired, setting up a case for discrimination on top of the huge firing fee that of course we now know is part of Halley's contract. Moreover, at least one Twitter user pointed out that although Elon complained about Halley taking to Twitter to resolve his employment questions, Elon himself has argued that social media should be used in exactly this way, in lieu of unions. He's liked a tweet which argued that these days with social media, you can be your own voice. You don't need to pay someone who makes $250,000 a year to be your voice. If Musk wanted Twitter, Twitter justice to take the place of unions, well, he certainly got his wish yesterday. Now, this would not be the first time Musk has gotten into trouble for labor violations. In 2019, a judge ruled that a 2018 anti-union tweet from Musk's personal account constituted unfair labor practices under the National Labor Relations Act. In just this year, he was finally cleared of fraud charges stemming from a 2018 tweet indicating that he was taking Tesla private. Perhaps tired of litigation or of losing huge chunks of his fortune to this Twitter investment, Musk quickly changed his tune. Now, initially, he was uh, unapologetic, saying in a now-deleted tweet that he didn't care if it was unwise to insult a former employee in public, writing, he's the worst, sorry. But Musk soon capitulated, writing, I would like to apologize to Halley for my misunderstanding of his situation. It was based on things I was told that were untrue or in some cases true but not meaningful. He is considering remaining at Twitter. As the kids say, life comes at you fast. Now, apart from being somewhat entertaining Twitter drama, why does all this matter? Well, for one, this episode exposes that unlike most Twitter users, Musk is not just a tweeter. He's an employer and a CEO with obligations to his staff that are people who make his company successful. He can't just tweet out every opinion, his words, and more importantly, his actions matter. Remember, this whole saga was precipitated by 200 layoffs last week, and the company is now down to fewer than 2,000 workers from these 7,500 who worked there when Musk took it over. Businessmen are often heralded heralded for being job creators. But all too often, companies are bought for profit and management decisions are made, not the interest of improving companies, improving function, improving products, or even growth. Instead, we're faced with mergers, layoffs, and monopolistic practices that are celebrated, oftentimes by the very conservative media figures who claim to value job creation. Just listen to this clip from earlier this week about a prospective airline merger.
4: This merger that's, that
6: Susan was talking about between Spirit and JetBlue, yeah. if I understood her correctly, she's saying the courts have basically Blocking that, mm-hmm. that's outrageous. Well, the and government. Trust. The, yeah, the, the government, that's outrageous. You're talking about Spirit and JetBlue. If they merged, they'd still have less than 20% of the market. How could anybody say that this is a monopolistic move? JetBlue is, a, is an airline that has cut airline it, prices. I think this is outrageous. This administration, big is. They, uh, exactly. That they're against mer- and Sorry. by the way, mergers and acquisitions are the way that small businesses become big businesses.
3: Mergers and acquisitions are how small businesses become businesses, not investment, hard work, just selling yourself off to some venture capital or merging with another monopolistic business. Okay, look, just months after one of the biggest airline disasters in American history, these pundits are arguing that fewer options for consumers, that consolidation, that monopoly is a good thing. Southwest scheduling problems were driven largely by a choice to pursue profit, to engage in stock buybacks, instead of investing profits in updated technology that could improve the efficiency of the booking experience and for customers broadly. But again and again, we're told by these corporate media figures to celebrate individual genius, to trust the experts, and to devalue the laborers that make companies great, Yesterday, Elon was exposed as having a flippant disregard for an engineer, the same flippant disregard he's shown for hundreds or thousands of engineers that he's fired since he took over the company. The only difference is that this time he picked on a deeply charitable, wholesome, accomplished person who happened to have won person in a year in Iceland and whose contributions to the company are much more difficult to dismiss especially given that multi-million dollar firing penalty clause in his contract. But you shouldn't have to be person of the year to have your work valued or to get a modicum of respect from your employer. Of course, sometimes there are going to be redundancies, there's gonna be layoffs. It's hard to argue that, you know, that guy in that famous office clip really should have kept his job. But Musk and his allies have been arguing that most if not all of the employees fired have been lazy disposable, and lacking in value, even when we can see so many of them go above and beyond to help Elon keep his company afloat, like this employee who was fired after going viral for sleeping in the office to help deliver for the company. This saga with Holly demonstrates at the very least that the narrative promoted by Musk, that the people who work at Twitter are disposable, has some holes in it. And I hope that folks evaluating the wisdom of Musk's employment decisions do so with just a little more grace going forward.
0: Yeah, look, I don't know what else to say about it. This was an ugly uh, incident that Musk caused. Um, It was not appropriate behavior for any manager anywhere to behave like this. He, I'm glad that he apologized and worked it out. He was correct to do so. Um, and, and Musk says, you know, I, that, um, that uh, it's better, uh, better to talk to people than communicate via tweet. I honestly hope <laughs> that that is something he takes to heart, because he, lo- he clearly loves Twitter. He loves sharing memes. He loves engaging the people. But he now owns the company, and his ro- in his role as owner and manager, and I'm trying to censor him or saying he can be less freewilling and wild. Again, I, I think the, some of the disclosures he've done, he, he's done are in the public benefit. Um, but from a managerial standpoint, he has to... You should not, it's just not appropriate for any manager anywhere to lash out employees like this. Yeah. We wouldn't lash out at our staff like this. You just, you, you don't. No. It's just, it's not good form to hash these things out in public. Some people will defend it because it's Musk, and that's like this is just not appropriate behavior, regardless. So I'm, I hope yeah. they work it out. I'm glad he apologized, and again, he should strongly consider what he said he was going to do, which is put a CEO in charge of this company yeah. rather than micromanage it while doing it all publicly. On Twitter itself.
3: Yeah. By the way, I say <laughs> the same thing for. There are all these disputes that happen at journalistic institutions where people are sniping at each other on the internet, on Twitter, when they work together. I think that's inappropriate as well. I mean, again, it's not yes. about censoring people. It's about.
0: One hundred percent. It's, it's a workplace out. issue. Yeah. It's, when when uh, <laughs> when that happens in uh, media institutions, the yeah. Washington Post, and New York Times, this whole you know fighting, you you're not. It's bad. Don't do it. Not supposed to do it. You know, you, you have your disagreements behind closed doors yeah. or in the structure of your debate-style television show. <laughs>
3: Absolutely. It's, a little well, it's, different. it's always a pleasure, Robbie, and I'm glad that we can maintain such cordiality <laughs> both on and off screen on these Twitter streets. Yeah, you heard it
1: here
3: first. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising for you right after this.
0: According to the New York Times, a new intelligence report reviewed by US officials asserts that a pro-Ukrainian group was behind last year's attacks on the Nord Stream pipeline. US government officials say there are no links showing Ukrainian President Zelensky or his government had anything to do with the act, but declined to offer any further information on the intelligence.
3: Meanwhile, Zelensky has vowed to send more troops to the eastern city of Bakhmut in what has become the bloodiest battle in the war with Russia. This just days after reports suggested Kiev is likely withdrawing
0: from the battle. Zelensky's announcement comes after President Biden approved another $400 million in aid to Ukraine. The unfaltering spending to the war-torn country has caused lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to begin to question the funding packages, according to The New York Times. So this, uh, this story about Nord Stream in The New York Times mm-hmm. is about intelligence. Intelligence report. So it sounds like officials, U.S. Uh, national security officials, are summarizing this intelligence for the New York Times. Very interesting. So it does not say that Russia did this. Uh, now, to be clear, it doesn't say the U.S. did it. It said, or Zelensky, it says a pro Ukrainian <laughs> entity.
3: But not not Ukraine.
0: What is the pro Ukrainian <laughs> entity that's not Ukraine?
3: And not the United States of America. Yeah, yeah. look. I'm not accusing anybody of simply printing U.S. intelligence reports that are false because it exonerates the U.S. Mm-hmm. and Zelensky of responsibility for an attack on a pipeline that would be a violation of international law. However, we definitely know that there is a pattern that exists of media printing U.S. intelligence reports the way they print Um, police reports uncritically and the complete and total deficit of information here I think is revealing.
0: I would like to see this intelligence report myself. Why is this not something the American people can view? Right. So here,
3: here's, here's just one paragraph that, that shows you mm-hmm. the, the kind of void that this article really is. It says, U.S. officials said there was much they didn't know about the perpetrators or their affiliations. The review of newly collected intelligence suggests they were opponents of Vladimir Putin, of Russia, but does not specify the members of the group or who directed or paid for the operation. U.S. officials declined to disclose the nature of the intelligence, or how it was obtained, or any details of the strength of the evidence it contains. They have said there are no firm conclusions about it, leaving open the possibility that the operation might have been conducted off the books by a proxy force. So what this does is basically have an article that says, just in case you're wondering, we don't know anything about anything, but it wasn't us, and it wasn't Zelensky.
0: But this is a little bit, I I mean, I agree with you, but. It is. Sh- it, it represents a, a slight shift because they're not saying Russia did it.
3: Well, they haven't been saying Russia did it. There was a report, I think, on the Washington Post at the end of last year, where they, like there was just no intelligence there. There, for U.S. Russia's officials have been saying Russia did it. U.S. officials, but the, the media has been off of that for a long time. Even yeah. the, even the corporate media has come out with, yeah. with reports that I think it was because the. Um,
0: well, but this is U.S. officials now saying now in a in a in an intelligence report being summarized by the New York Times, but the the intelligence people are not saying Russia did it. I found that remarkable. Well, I
3: I think the reason is, ever since we got the report last year from whatever it was, uh, the combination of Norway and Sweden and Germany or whoever it was Mm -hmm. that was doing the investigation, they very quickly cleared Russia of responsibility. So there was absolutely no evidence that Russia could be involved. So since that point, unless you're willing to contradict allies and have some proof with which to contradict allies, I think it put the U.S. in a very difficult position. Um, And the the narrative of Russia having involvement has been been substantively dead for a while. But that leaves a void, right? That leaves a, well, OK, then who did it void? because as the Seymour Hirsch uh, reporting details it takes a, an enormous amount of technical capacity to be able to carry something out like this at the deep sea depths there's only so many dr- divers that are trained for this kind of operation there's only so many ships that can gain access to this heavily patrolled NATO area of the occupied area of the of the ocean of the sea so this seems to be one might argue that this is an effort to provide Uh, a placeholder uh, where that void of Russia didn't do it exists, which is to say that there could be some, what, terrorist group, some third party unaffiliated with another country. Because, again, this is important. Because once it's affiliated with a country, once Zelensky is responsible, once the United Mm -hmm. States is responsible, there are implications for international law.
0: Zelensky, I believe, has said Russia is responsible. Well, But so so now, (laughs) well, no, no, I know. know. But they're saying U.S. intelligence officials are contradicting what Zelensky has said. And contradicting what our own officials used to say, I mean, you're saying you're right that the media has maybe moved, even the corporate media catching up to it. But uh, I, I, I I think this is a little bit like uh, the lab leak animal spillover debate, where like the one the side that the dissidents or the contrarians or the people not well respected have been saying, uh, we're not allowed to talk about it. You don't think there's any likelihood to this? Is is gradually winning over time?
3: Well, look, you can see, and I as... actually
0: see this piece as even though it's flawed and not. I don't think correct. That's about funny. I, I see it is- as
3: fully insulating. It's it's telling people no matter what ambiguity exists out there, America definitely didn't do it, and Zelensky definitely didn't do it. Which to me represents not a kind of movement to more inquiry and openness. It's if you're going to mm-hmm. use the lab leak um, analogy, it's as if instead of saying we know it's zoonotic. They say it it might not be zoonotic, but it's absolutely not lab leak. Mm. You know, it's absolutely not uh, the one that would be negatively like, implicate America or our our funding practices in these labs or whatever negatively. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I'm not saying it's a good intelligence (laughs) report or even correct, but I I find it interesting that the U.S. intelligence officials are no longer actually blaming Russia, which to me opens the door to eventually learn something else about who might have been responsible.
3: I mean, part of what was so. Fascinating,
0: but if we could actually read the report, we'd know. We're, we ask, we're relying well, on the New York Times. Well, remember
3: the whole point of that of UN hearing that we covered a week or two ago, right. at which Jeffrey Sachs gave uh, remarks, in addition to a former um, CIA uh, official Ray McGovern, about why they believe the Seymour Hersh report is accurate. Was that they were calling? They were they were there to testify in favor of a UN independent committee to do an independent investigation. And the reason why Russia is invested in this is because the results of the investigation or the investigation itself, they're being barred from participating from, that's being carried out by a number of NATO countries. And whatever you think about Russia, no one's really arguing that they're involved. And it seems obvious why they would have an investment in figuring out who actually did it, given how much blame came their way and how, the, to your point, Robbie, the US, the U.S. officials have been wanting to finger them with this the whole time, and only basically stopped because they, they can't. There's no evidence for it. So why wouldn't why would Russia trust a report by a bunch of NATO allies who have every incentive to Either not find the real solution, if not cast it in a negative light, and that's I would argue exactly what the UN is there for to conduct these kind of investigations. But there was no appetite from it from the United States, France, or any of the other NATO countries that were on that panel. A lot of the other the other um, global South countries were kind of more neutral on it, made critical statements about what this did to the environment, how it was a horrible environmental impact, and that people should care about it. But you know, it is very it is. It is interesting to me that the US media, that there, there, there was an openness to the UN conducting an independent investigation.
0: Yeah. Why? You it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. But I, I thought this was interesting. Well, we'll continue to follow, for sure, any developments on the Nord Stream front, and we will have more rising right after this. What's on your radar, Brianna?
3: Well, Robbie. Just a month after Seymour Hersh reported intelligence from an anonymous source detailing how the United States carried out the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines that were built to deliver natural gas from Russia to Ukraine, the corporate media has finally acknowledged that the report was published at all, but not for the reason you might think. Rather than reporting on Hersh's journalism, assessing the stated motives for the U.S.'s unlawful attack, corroborating or refuting details in Hersh's reporting, or conducting their own independent investigations, the mainstream media has recognized Hershey's reporting only in the context of a new theory of who's responsible for the unlawful attack. Earlier this week, the New York Times published in an article announcing that, quote, newly collected intelligence now suggests that the Nord Stream bomber was not the United States, but a pro-Ukraine group. In the context of this article, Hershey's reporting is finally acknowledged, not as the detailed source piece of journalism that it was, but in the following aside, quote, Last month, the investigative journalist Seymour Hersh published an article on the newsletter platform Substack concluding that the United States carried out the operation at the direction of Mr. Biden. In making his case, Mr. Hersh cited the president's pre-invasion threat to bring an end to Nord Stream 2 and similar statements by other senior U.S. officials. Well, of course, this passage gives the impression that Cy Hersh based his report on remarks made by U.S. officials. No mention is made of his anonymous source or the details that source provided, details like the skill level required to execute a deep sea explosion, and the limited number of divers on the planet who are even trained to carry out such a mission, where the uh, divers were trained, how regular NATO events in the vicinity of the pipeline helped to justify the presence of U.S. ships in the area, how the Biden administration ducked congressional reporting requirements, and the fact that the mission launched from Norway or even a timeline of when the attack was planned and by whom. And no one could argue that the erasure of those details was strategic. For one, reducing Hersh's argument to Biden administration statements puts the accusation that the US carried out the attacks in the realm of mere conjecture. But second, detailing Hersh's account would make the complete and total lack of detail in the new New York Times report that much more striking. As journalist Aaron Maté recently wrote in an article you can find on his Substack, quote, the only confirmed intelligence about the supposed pro-Ukrainian group that carried out the attack is that the U.S. officials have no intelligence at all. The Times report explained that, quote, U.S. officials said there was much they did not know about the perpetrators and their affiliations. The alleged newly collected information does not specify the members of the group or who directed or paid for the operation. But despite the lack of evidence of any kind, the New York Times sources speculated that the saboteurs were most likely Ukrainian or Russian nationals, or some combination of the two. Aaron goes on to contrast the credulity with which the Times accepts its anonymous sources account with the skepticism heaped on Hirsch. Despite offering no details and no corroborating information, the Times argued that this story, quote, amounts to the first significant known lead about who was responsible for the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines. While the Times', ano- Times anonymous sources are considered significant, Hersh's source was treated with overwhelming skepticism. The Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist was attacked as not credible, and those journalists who did opine on Hersh's report, rather than simply memory hole it, ignore it altogether, relied on ad hominems. The New Yorker claimed Hirsch had gone off the rails and embraced conspiracy theories. And the State Department spokesman, Ned Price, referred to the report as propaganda before mischaracterizing its contents entirely. Take a listen.
0: One of the allegations that Hirsch makes is that it was taken off the CIA in order to prevent involvement uh, oversight uh, as a covert operation. Did you read the piece? I'm familiar with it. Uh, one of his allegations is that it was taken off of the. Look, ra-
8: rather than let this this propaganda no, be, be aired in, in, there's in, there's in the, the briefing legal, room. But let, let, legal let, let me just say it is a fundamental misunderstanding of oversight in our U.S. Congress beyond getting his facts entirely wrong, as he has before in very uh, high profile
0: ways. Uh, it is a fundamental misunderstanding suggests that our intelligence community is not subject to oversight. Anyone who writes that, anything who writes anything like that, no, no, uh, should, no, should not that, be believed not, not on any no, fact that he for. No, no, no. That, he he wrote wrote that it was taken off of a uh, CIA and put under military in order to prevent- Our military is also subject to
8: rigorous oversight. That, that That's uh, my go question. Go that's yes, my question. The answer is yes. Do you
0: recognize and abide by the War um, Powers Clause in such a situation?
3: Just listen to the level of detail that you get about Hirsch's account just from that reporter's question. Of course, Hirsch's reporting could be wrong. His source could be wrong. But the specificity offers ample opportunity for specific pushback. In other words, there are a lot of details in Hirsch's account and in the reporter's question that could be disputed if they were entirely wrong. But instead of listening and engaging to that specificity, Ned Price filibusters, mischaracterizes the reporting and justifies his non-engagement by calling Hirsch's account propaganda. Now, let's go back to this new claim that a pro-Ukrainian group executed the attack. As Aaron summarizes the Times' opinion uh, position, quote, U.S. officials have much they did not know about the perpetrators, i.e. everything, enormous gaps in their awareness of how the unknown pro ukraine group purportedly carried out a deep-sea bombing, uncertainty over how much weight to put on their intelligence, and even no firm conclusions to offer. And the timing of this report, following Cy Hirsch's inconvenient to the State Department reporting, is also notable. As Aaron puts it, given the absence of evidence and a curious timing, a reasonable conclusion is not that a Ukrainian proxy force was the culprit, but that the U.S. is now using its Ukrainian proxy as a scapegoat. Now, of course, after radio silence following Hirsch's reporting, the corporate media has been quick to pick up the Times' thin speculative account. Reuters, The Guardian, Forbes, NPR, Fox News, and MSNBC all covered the story. The German media has also picked up the report, claiming to have sourced even more details, mainly that a group of six divers in a yacht carried out the attack. There's been little to no interrogation of who trained these divers or how they managed to transport the equipment and explosives needed for the attack to the site of the bombing. The German paper merely explained that the boat was discovered by investigators because traces of explosives were left on the boat, a mistake that seems somewhat out of step with the sophistication of the mission. As Aaron put it, should this lean pro-Ukraine crack team of naval commandos conduct another act of deep sea sabotage, they will only need to hire a cleaning professional to get away with it. The New York Times article does not account for what might be the most damning piece of evidence uh, tying the U.S. to the Nord Stream attack motive. But despite the Times' eagerness to blame Russia immediately following the attack, even it had to back off that allegation after a European investigation found no evidence of Russian involvement. And also, no motive. Of course, Russia stood to profit mightily from natural gas sales to Europe. America, on the other hand, has long taken issue with Europe's reliance on Russia for energy. We're all now very familiar with the Biden quote, quote, if Russia invades, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it. America's motives here are clear. No motive has been articulated for this pro-Ukraine group, however. But the US's motive in fingering an independent actor rather than a nation for this attack is again obvious. Hirsch's report argued that Norway was complicit in the attack, but a NATO ally conducting an act of sabotage would make it difficult for America to use respect for the rules-based order to justify its imperialism around the world or its involvement in the Ukraine war in the first place. And as discussed, the rap just doesn't stick to Russia because of its investment in the pipeline. But for a third-party actor's involvement. The U.S. and its allies would face some pretty serious implications on the global stage. It's a very lucky thing indeed that anonymous sources happen to discover a third-party actor at this time, one about whom we know absolutely nothing. The New York Times really showed its hand in its podcast coverage of the story on The Daily, that's its daily morning show. The host, Michael Barbaro, interviewed one of the authors of the New York Times piece, Julian Barnes, who, after giving a cursory nod to the theory that the US had motive and ability to carry out the attack, said this.
6: So Julian, who exactly was responsible for this attack and how did you and our colleagues go about
8: figuring that out? Well, I think what happened was for much of the investigation, we weren't asking exactly the right questions. Hmm. And what were the right questions? Well, we had logically been focused on countries. Mm -hmm. All those states that we just went through. Did Russia do it? Did the Ukraine state do it? And that was just hitting dead end after dead end. We weren't finding officials who were telling us that there was credible evidence pointing at a government.
3: So first, he concludes that it was wrong to think governments carried out this attack because he encountered dead ends. But notice what country he leaves out there. Did the United States do it? (laughs) Also note what he describes as a dead end, the absence of an official who was telling him that there was credible evidence pointing at a government. So basically, he was relying on a government actor to implicate itself. Absent that, he's saying it couldn't be the government, a government that was
8: involved. Okay, (laughs) now let's keep going. My colleagues, Adam Entis, Adam Goldman and I started asking a different question. Could this have been done by non-state actors? Hmm. Could this have been done by a group of individuals who were not working for a government? Kind of like freelance saboteurs. So where did you take this new question? Well, we started asking who might these saboteurs be? Or if we couldn't answer that, who might they be aligned with, right? Could they be Mm -hmm. pro-Russian saboteurs? Could they be other saboteurs?
3: Note again, he avoids the possibility of American involvement. Now, earlier in the podcast, he explained why Russian involvement didn't make any sense. Again, Russia benefits enormously from a functioning pipeline, destroying it destroyed its leverage over Europe. And moreover, Russia can simply turn off the flow. It had control of its own natural gas, obviously. It didn't need to blow up the pipeline to withhold the resource. That being the case, what is the potential motive for a Russian saboteur? The reporter Barnes doesn't explain, nor does he bother explaining how a non-state actor might manage to pull off the sophisticated operation in the first place. But let's keep going.
8: The more we talked to officials who had access to intelligence, the more we saw this theory gaining traction. Mm -hmm. And my initial thought that this could be pro-Russian saboteurs turned out to be wrong. And we learned that it was most likely a pro-Ukrainian group.
3: So that's the admission that the more they talked to intelligence officials, the more they were pointed toward independent actors, non-nations, actors that didn't implicate the US or its allies in violating the rules-based order. Barnes frames this as finally asking the right questions after asking the wrong ones. Alternatively, this could be framed as ignoring the obvious and asking the questions that are convenient to the intelligence community. Last segment.
6: The group of people who did this on behalf of Ukraine, what what do you learn that makes you think that's what happened?
8: Michael, I should be very clear that we know really very little, right? This group remains mysterious, and it remains mysterious not just to us, but also to the U.S. government officials that we have spoken to. They know that the people involved were either Ukrainian or Russian or a mix. They know that they are not a. affiliated with the Ukrainian government, but they know they're also anti-Putin and pro-Ukraine.
3: So that feels like an admission that his report is based at least in part, probably large part or exclusively, off of U.S. government officials who, as we've discussed, have an obvious incentive to shift the blame from themselves or from their national allies, and moreover This report that they've come up with is completely unsubstantiated by the kind of detail Hirsch included in his journalism. The only detail here is the one that really matters from a U.S. perspective, that it definitely wasn't us or our allies, nations, that did it. Really incredible stuff here. Just one last fact of note, Bellingcat a NATO state-funded website disputed Hirsch's account by claiming that open-source tracking of ships in the Baltic Sea undermined Hersh's claims that the ships were where he said they were at the Times he said they were there. Okay, so this apparent factual refutation was used broadly to discredit Hersh's account. However, the Times story, it is a little bit useful here, it unwittingly corroborates that ships can turn off location transponders and cloak their movements. This is how the New York Times piece argues the pro-Ukrainian ship was able to access the pipeline undetected. Now, Aaron points out that Hirsch has made this point as well, but it was accepted with much less good faith when Hirsch was making this argument than when the New York Times was making this to make the case that an alleged Ukrainian yacht carried out this deep sea attack.
0: Yeah. Wow. I I like when he's just kind of speculating, could this have been done (laughs) by freelance saboteurs? No, (laughs) I think is the answer. It's like being a
3: child with your hand (laughs) caught in the cookie jar and your parent comes in and you're like, but hear me out, mom. Right. Might elves have done this? (laughs) You know, you're just, you're just, you're asking the kinds of questions that are leading to the answers that you want very plainly on its face. I don't know. I, I felt like I, listening to that daily episode was somehow more damning than the article uh, yeah. because there wasn't, like, the, I guess, the editor editor standing between you and certain kind of admissions yeah. about what's really driving your reporting here.
0: Someone uh, on Twitter that I like, I think maybe it was that Alice from Queens account, mm-hmm. was saying, like, okay, they're in the bargaining stage. First it was <laughs> denial. Now it's bargaining. Like, well, okay, okay. I mean, in Russia, no. But but saboteurs, that they like Ukraine, but they're not U.S. Or Ukraine. Um, look, I still think there is, is some legitimate uh, question about whether, about who exactly has done this. Sure, of course. Um, I, I think um, Seymour Hersh reported a lot of great. It's very interesting. Uh, obviously, we pressed him when we interviewed him for more details about his sources, which he understandably can't provide. Um, I, I have also seen, you know, some reporting on whether Ukraine, not not a. Stab, not an independent saboteur group that happens to have Ukraine's best interest in mind, but the country Ukraine, right. directed by its government, right. are the responsible party. I find that, again, I don't know anything more than anyone else. I find that to be probably, the, in my own view, the leading and likely um, uh, actor involved. But that's but,
3: important, right? And they, they get into this in the, in the podcast not, no, episode. But not just random
0: people who like Ukraine. Right, but the,
3: it's important. Random Russian people who a, like Ukraine, a, right? right? It's a, it, that, that's what's so interesting here. It's so important for no nations to be implicated. Mm -hmm. Because if it's Ukraine, it's with, one, it's, it it implicates an ally. Mm -hmm. And two, it's probably with the support, investment, or at least, you know, approval of the Mm -hmm. American government as well. Or some
0: aspect of the American government.
3: right, Right, exactly. And if Ukraine is now in a position of being fingered as having destroyed the property of a NATO country, right. someone who we were actually in a, treaty, in a treaty relationship with, the implications of us continuing to side with Ukraine and fight with Ukraine, it's a disaster from a foreign policy perspective. Yeah. So you mentioned Alice McQueen. She's a favorite of, of mine in terms yeah. of Twitter accounts. She tweeted the other day, uh, new theory. The Nord Stream leak came from the wet market.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was pretty good.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Chef kissy react thing. Perfect. (laughs) All All right. right. Great radar, Brianna. (laughs) Thank Thank you you so much. More Rising right after this. Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have maybe the best show ever for you today. Let's see if we can live up to that. Hello, Brianna. Hello,
3: Robbie. I'm ready to try. I'm ready to try. Well, on Wednesday, the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic held a hearing to investigate the origins of COVID 19. The hearing largely grappled with uh, between two hypotheses of how the pandemic began through a natural spillover event or an accidental lab leak witnesses who testified included the Republican invitees Jamie Metzel a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council an international affairs think tank based in Washington DC Dr Robert Redfield former director of the CDC of course and Nicholas Wade former science editor for The New York Times. All three of those witnesses have supported the lab leak hypothesis. The Democrats invited one witness, Paul o- o- Owerter, the clinical director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Owerter is more favorable uh, toward the zoonotic origin of the disease. We gave our initial reaction to some of the news out of the hearing yesterday, so check that out if you missed it.
0: Here to discuss key takeaways from the hearing is Catherine Eban, contributing editor at Vanity Fair, who's done really terrific reporting on the potential origins of COVID-19. Welcome, Catherine.
5: Thanks for having me. Great to be on with you.
0: So you were uh, among er- the early reporters of some of the potential conflicts of interest in which the NIH uh, would have maybe been reticent to fully investigate a lab leak hypothesis. You also did some great reporting on uh, uh, what intelligence we've gathered, what information we've gathered about what was actually going on in the Wuhan lab, and the pressure to produce experimentation, whether it led to uh, cutting of corners. So I think you're a, a perfect person to have on to Discuss this. What was your takeaway from the hearings and from the kind of shifting consensus, which is now being much more open to the possibility of a lab leak?
5: Well, first of all, you know, it's important to say that this hearing was a long time in coming. Um, there has been a um, sort of political standoff and a scientific standoff around the question of origins. Um, and so this is really one of the very first hearings that looked squarely at this issue. I think part of the Democratic reluctance to hold hearings on this is that the Republicans have really targeted Anthony Fauci. Um, And so the entire debate has become really unfortunately politicized in a way that I think has been uh, very counterproductive uh, in exploring the very serious questions that that exist.
0: Yeah, on speaking on the politicization front, you know, we've heard um, I have seen kind of commentators in the media and the mainstream media uh, you, you know who are now saying, "Okay, yes, the lab leak should be explored, investigated." But I, I was hesitant. You know, they, they'll say that they were hesitant to, um, to open the door to that because of the perception that it was somehow tied to something Donald Trump thought or that it was somehow the more racially problematic of the theories. Um, I think that's very, that seemed like a knee jerk kind of appraisal of those two theories to me anyway. It doesn't really make sense. Um, and shows, I guess, the risk of, of having the pursuit of truth be so be so hamstrung by by uh... by politics
5: you know this has just been uh, really a toxic debate from the very beginning um, president trump got up in april of twenty twenty and said it came from the lab he did not provide evidence you know from my own reporting it's clear that some of what is viewed by some as stronger evidence Came in much later than that, so it is really not clear what the basis of that early claim he made was. But you know, it certainly set the stage for an extreme reluctance uh, by many within the government and outside of it to even take this um, possibility seriously. Um, unfortunately, because of that, um, the kind of the the clues or the material has come out drip by drip through, um, through sort of armchair sleuths, through a few journalists, uh, through um, FOIA groups who have been litigating against the NIH. And you know, what has emerged from internal emails um, is a picture of an NIH that quickly seemed to understand that it had some exposure here. That is not to say that the NIH played necessarily any role in funding the research that ultimately may have led to a laboratory leak. But it is clear that the NIH did uh, provide funding that went to uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology for risky coronavirus research. Um, And that has really complicated the investigative picture here.
3: Catherine, can you speak to some of the evidence that was presented at the hearings from the pro-zoonotic camp versus the lab leak camp? Because so much of this conversation is about you know, stigma and bias and premature claims and cover-ups. But for people who just want to be able to figure out what really happened, what, what kind of evidence are we looking at?
5: Well, first of all, let me just say um there are a number of virologists who have made the point that there were no virologists on the panel uh, yesterday. That is Uh. true. And I think that's unfortunate. So we really did not get to hear um, from the scientists in the virology community who have advocated that this uh, and studied and come up with a conclusion that uh, there was a natural origin for this virus and it came from a market. So, Uh, Unfortunately, that viewpoint was not very well represented at the hearing yesterday. Um, But the viewpoint that was represented was um, the people putting forth the evidence that it possibly could have come from a laboratory. So one of the things that they have talked about is um, the unusual features of this virus, that it contains a furin cleavage site, which is a genomic feature of the virus that allows it to sort of dock successfully in human cells and infect human cells. Um, Now, why is that uh, particularly alarming to some of the witnesses yesterday? Because in 2018, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology's top coronavirus scientists in partnership with a North Carolina virologist and a scientific nonprofit in the U.S applied to DARPA, which is a DoD agency, to create coronavirus uh, sequences with that exact feature in them. So they were proposing to do in 2018 what emerged in late 2019 mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> You know the witnesses yesterday pointed out that that is that alone is enough for us to be able to consider, Um, the possibility of a laboratory leak. Uh. You know, the witnesses also pointed out that the NIH really has not been forthcoming here about uh, what kind of research they funded, um, you know, what the grant proposals were, um, whether they were funding extremely risky research, uh, you know, and all of that took place about eight miles away from the market where the virus first emerged.
0: And, and could you, uh, you know, summarize for our viewers some of the, the reporting you've done on, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the lab procedures, the pressure to produce innovations, the, the dispatches from the Wuhan Institute of Virology that perhaps suggest a warning of something very bad that had happened, that they were you know, war- tele- informing the government about?
5: Right, well, the sources I've interviewed and the documents that I've obtained basically show that in the run-up to the emergence of the virus, um, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was struggling with its biocontainment procedures. It was making procurements uh, that suggested there may have been some kind of issue that they were grappling with, some sort of biocontainment issue. Uh, and then there were uh, archived documents suggesting that there were meetings related to um, biocontainment problems that occurred at the WIV. I think even more compellingly is the fact that, you know, their own directors and their own scientists were publishing, uh, papers in peer-reviewed journals saying that the, you know, regulation and the procedures around risky research were woefully inadequate. They did not have enough funding. They did not have enough trained and experienced staff. Um, you know, there seemed to be a recognition in China that uh, there was a need for regulatory overhaul of this risky research. And those top folks, including uh, the scientists who ran the BSL-4 laboratory at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, were really sounding the alarm about some of these problems. You know, I should say, I think we don't know enough at this point to say um, where this virus originated. And that was really a major uh, theme that emerged from yesterday's hearing. So there has been a call uh, in Congress, for the Biden administration to declassify what they do know, uh, and I think that that could go a long way toward filling out the picture here.
0: Mm. Well, we want to play an exchange from the hearing yesterday. House Republican uh, Jim Jordan had this to say:
4: "Why don't you cut to the chase and tell me what you really think was the reason?" <laughs> uh, I don't know what, what the reason was. I do. I know what it was. Uh, I. Go well, ahead. no, I'll go ahead go ahead. I'll let you say it because I read your testimony. I think you you
0: said it in your testimony, too. Maybe you're reluctant to <clears throat> say it here, but go ahead.
5: Well, if you're looking at the timeline on um,
4: may twenty first, um, just uh, a few weeks after the nature Medi- uh, the the Nature medicine article had come out, Uh, Two of the signatures
5: of the original email to uh, Dr. Fauci, that's Dr. Anderson and Dr. Gary, were awarded a $9 million grant for that. So there's
8: 9 million reasons why they changed their mind. I knew you'd get to it. I read that last night.
0: Three months after... So three days after they say it came from a lab, they changed their position, and the only intervening events: a conference call with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins. Again, a call that Mr. Redfield was not allowed to be on, the head of CDC and on the Coronavirus Task Force. And then three months later, shazam, they get nine million bucks from Dr. Fauci. So some of the, I think, concerning details to emerge in this hearing is that, and you know, Red, Dr. Redfield's testimony was very powerful, that he was not welcome in some of these conversations because of his advocacy, or because of his idea that it was a lab leak. Um, and, and also, you know, we're, we're worried, can we trust government science Health experts to properly vet and investigate COVID's origins when it does seem like they both had money at stake and almost something ideologically and 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 a desire to avoid future bureaucratic scrutiny, right? Given their investment in the kinds of uh, the research that we're now worried about.
5: So really, what goes to the heart of the question here is why there appears to have been an effort to manufacture an early narrative that this could not have come from a laboratory. Uh, and really that, that um, narrative was manufactured long before <clears throat> scientific evidence had emerged, right? It was very early on, January, February, in which the question of a possible laboratory origin was branded as a conspiracy theory. Um, and that was done in a series of papers. Um, uh, and in the paper that um, Jordan is referring to there was called Proximal Origins. It was um, uh, really put together in February of 2020 by a group of scientists who had uh, you know, background conversations with Dr. Fauci and Jeremy Farrar of the Wellcome Trust in the UK. Um, And the question there has been, why did they, um, the scientists who were involved said early on, privately in emails to one another, that it looked to them like it possibly could have come uh, from a laboratory, that it could have been an engineered virus. Uh, Within days, they changed their uh, stance and put together a paper which really took the possibility of a laboratory leak off the table. And so one of the questions is, why did that happen? Did it happen on the basis of um, some scientific evidence that they got a hold of so quickly? Or did it happen on the basis of a decision that a narrative of a laboratory leak would be so damaging to science, to the NIH, um, to international harmony, which um, one of the email's references that uh, they wanted to kind of put that possibility to bed as quickly as possible. Mm. Mm.
0: Catherine, thank you so much for joining us to go over that. We really appreciate it.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: We'll have more Rising right after this.